praised be Jesus Christ, and peace be with you on this, uh, this tranquil November morning, which is rapidly becoming sunny. Um, <laughs> I will confess, this is my second, well, actually, actually, my third attempt this morning to record the podcast, and I, and I also must confess, it is now the afternoon. <laughs> As I look at the clock, I realize, yeah, it's officially the afternoon. Um, I was taking a bit of a walk earlier on this kind of country road, and I recorded the podcast, and it was only about 45 minutes long. We'll see how long this one ends up being, but uh, so not terribly long. I, I recorded it all. I got in the car. I was listening to a bit of it as I was driving, and I realized this is so bad. I cannot, I cannot publish it. <laughs> For one thing, although you could hear me uh, reasonably well, you you were forced to listen to me uh, breathing wheezing really sort of raspily <laughs> every couple of words uh, because of the hilly terrain that I was traversing uh, and so I, I didn't want to inflict that on you good people and then also as I was listening to it I realized you know it's kind of a gray chilly morning and I was out there walking and it's raining on me and it's been kind of a tough week and I realized this is this is pretty bleak. This is pretty melancholy. I'm just complaining. <laughs> no one wants to listen to this. So I've decided for your sake, for your sake, to re-record this podcast. So right now I'm driving back into the city of Eugene. I was, as I said, out walking in the country, not far away from the city, but a, a, a little ways out um, on a little road. There's a road called Fox Hollow Road, which goes out. It's very picturesque. And it goes out amongst the trees. And then I turned off of Fox Hollow Road onto a little a little dirt road or gravel road, which had a sign promising a Christmas tree farm. I thought, that will be a picturesque place to walk. And, uh, well, of course, the Christmas tree farm, which is at the, at the end of the lane, you know, they had signs posted saying, no trespassing, keep out. So I just walked up and down, up and down this sort of hilly gravel uh, road. Uh, for a while. That was a nice walk, though. And as I said, there was a little drizzle. It's kind of one of those nice Oregon fall mornings where the air is crisp. And, you know, it's uh, one thing that I that I really love about Oregon, I'll just say this, is um, kind of the different quality of light and the different colors that come out in different seasons. Uh, so it's it's lovely here of course, in the summer, all the colors that, that, that appear that you didn't realize were here. Um, but in the fall also, it, it helps that we get all this beautiful fall foliage. And I'm driving now with leaves drifting down through the air in, in all these shades of, you know, brilliant reds and all sorts and yellows and greens. Um, but also, I, I really think different seasons have different qualities of light. And there's kind of this, this very clear, bright fall light. It's different from summer and it's different. It's very different from winter. You know, we'll be getting into winter soon and things are a little bleak in winter. But here, when the sun is out in the fall, things have this, this sharpness to them, don't they? This, yeah, this sharp, bright quality. It's, it's really stunning. Everything seems crisp and clear. And I love that about this season. So I'm grateful to have a little sunlight now as I'm driving back into Eugene. And uh, perhaps I'll find a place to get out and walk again, but maybe not. We'll see. Maybe I'll stop for a coffee. Who knows? This will be a great adventure <laughs> that we're on together. Oh, the leaves are so stunning. I just drove through this cloud of red leaves. They were almost as if they were just hanging in the air like by magic. Ah, oh, beautiful. So, um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's, been, it's been a challenging week in, in many ways. It's been a good week also, and, and I'll say that at the beginning, but... You know, I've been kind of caught up in a bit of a whirlwind this week. It's been, it's just been busy. And uh, I, I was talking to a friend yesterday and I really had to spend some time. He, he'd asked me, well, actually, um, it, was, it was my friend I think I mentioned. We have this, just this practice normally of reporting into each other, checking in about just how the Lord's been saving us each day. And this week, I think it was kind of a busy week for him too. We haven't done it for a few days, but he sent me a message yesterday and so I was obliged to respond. 
And uh, as I was trying to, you know, think, rag my brains for what has actually happened, just, just in that day, just yesterday, it was difficult to come up with a response because so, not, 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 it was not for lack of activities because so much, so much has happened. Um, and the week has just gone by in a blink of an eye and with hardly any trace of its passing, <laughs> you know, and so it's been, it's just been that, yeah, that kind of a week. Um, but I thought I would, I would share with you, since now I'm doing this for the second time, you know, the first time pretty much I was just whining about the week. Uh, I think rather this time, something that would actually be constructive and, and, and in line with what St. Paul says, you know, say only the good things that men need to hear, things that will really help them. I thought, well, maybe I'll share some of the lessons, some of the lessons I think the Lord is trying to teach me this week, some things I hope to carry with me, um, you know, on into the future, some some uh, some practices that I would like to do. And so let's just, uh, let's dive into that for a few minutes. Um, one thing that I think the Lord is really, I'm going to turn down my speaker here because I'm getting some feedback. I hope you didn't hear that. One thing that the Lord has been impressing upon me this week, or I'll say it this way, one thing that um, I have been convicted about this week <laughs> is the need for decisiveness in leadership. And I've been learning some things this week um, through the example of priests in the parish. And without casting aspersions, I'll say through the negative example (laughs) of some priests in the parish. Of course, we've got great priests here, um, but nobody's perfect. And so I'm hoping, you know, in the pastoral year, as in life, we learn from the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so it's all formation. It's all part of the Lord's design. So I'm hoping that there are some lessons I can take away from from certain indecisive uh, experiences of leadership I've had. For example, there was an event this week that I was asked to lead. Um, Actually, I was asked at the end of last week. And so I had about a week to prepare. But in the interim time, the, the, the event, incidentally, it's something that a priest would normally do. Um, but it's permitted for me to do it. And in this case, as it happens, the priest was going to be away and there was no other priest who could cover it. And so, you know, I was being asked to take it on, which is fine. It's perfectly fine. The issue is that as the week passed by, the the interim time passed by, um, the expectations of of what I was going to do kept changing. (laughs) And so... At first, you know, part of it was going to be giving a reflection. And then the priest came and said, well, why don't you just read this prepared text that, that I've, I've prepared for you? And then it became, well, you actually won't have to lead this at all. Just set up for it and I'll come and lead it. But then the next day it became, well, I'm not sure if I'll get back in time after all. So you set it up and prepare and stand, be on standby, be ready to lead it. And if I come in time, I'll lead it. And if not, you'll lead it. <laughs> And that's, that's where things ended up until about five minutes before the event actually started, when the priest arrived and led the event. So plans change and, uh, you know, circumstances are shifting and whatnot. And that's just part of the reality of our <laughs> human existence, right? Living in the world. But one lesson I'm learning from this is um, just how much better it would be um, for me as a leader, like if I were in the priest's position, in a position of leadership, delegating something to someone else under my authority, how much better of an experience it would be for that person if I, ahead of time, just considered, just, you know, had, took my time of discernment to think about what's this going to look like and what do I need from this person? What do I need them to do? And then give them the direction and from that point, the decision is made. You know what I mean? That that decisiveness. So if I were to delegate this task to someone, I would say from the beginning, this is my ideal, what I would like to do. You know, I'd say to them from the beginning, look, I need you to cover this task on Thursday. Are you up to doing this? This, this is what you'll be asked to do. Get get there an hour early, set everything up, prepare a reflection. And, the, you know, and the, in other words, these will be the task. These are the responsibilities. And then we'll stick to that. My schedule might change. You know, maybe all of a sudden I, if I were the priest, I'll be free to do it. 
but that doesn't matter because <laughs> I've already delegated it. You know what I mean? So just to have that decisiveness, that stick to itiveness, um, for me, I think that's a really important component of leadership. Um, if you delegate something, you have to trust the person to do it. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna give a task to somebody else, the task is theirs. It's off your plate. You know, and I think. That, that can be a difficult thing to do as a leader. <laughs> and I've experienced that myself, you know, on the other side as a leader. I've experienced kind of the difficulty there of um, actually being able to let something go once I've delegated it. But I think it's really important. It builds trust with your team. It builds trust with the team. When those who are under your authority, when they know, okay, the pastor's asked me to do this, that means it's my responsibility. That means he's not going to parachute in and take it over. <laughs> he's leaving this for me to handle. It's up to me. You know, that, that, it creates a different attitude in a team. And I think it builds trust. And it, it builds respect. It's respectful of the other person's time and of their dignity and, and so on. So anyway, I, that's just something I'm feeling convicted about. Um, and I've been blessed with good examples of priests who, are, who exhibit that kind of decisiveness in leadership and that stick to you know. One example that I will always treasure is our, our president rector at St. Patrick's, Father Daniel Donahue. Um, if you're hearing this, please say a prayer for him because his health is not good. And he's actually just had to step down as our rector because his health is, is in decline. And they've appointed an, a new interim rector who I have not met yet. So, in fact, let's say a prayer together for Father Dan. We'll just pray a Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Through the intercession of Mary, dear Jesus, may you grant him good health and peace and gladness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Father Dan, uh, this past spring, as the, as the coronavirus pandemic was kind of breaking and things, and, and the world was kind of uh, transitioning into a into panic mode, <laughs> and news is breaking constantly, and things are are not clear. It was it was not clear in those real early days back in March exactly what was going on and exactly what the prudent thing to do would have been. Other seminaries that I know of um, kind of took a wishy washy approach, and that lasted for months, even until the end of the academic year, of kind of not really committing to one position or the other. Some seminarians allowed to go home, still having classes um, for a while, and then offering different options, some, some classes in person, some online, um, not really sending a consistent message, and leaving everyone kind of in a state of confusion, not knowing what to expect from day to day. So other seminarians I know at other institutions, um, even until the end, you know, the final weeks of the academic year, we're never sure, are we going to be sent home tomorrow? Are things going to shut down? What's, what's our life going to look like uh, next week? They had no idea. And so I was very grateful to Father Dan for his good leadership because he called us all one day into the Santa Maria Hall, the conference hall at our seminary where he would give his rector's conferences. And he laid it all out for us and he told us, he told us, man, this is the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my time as a priest. This is the hardest decision I've ever had to make. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'm making this decision um, for your sakes and for the sakes of your bishops because I, I'm entrusted with responsibility for you men. It looks like this, this pandemic is going to be something pretty serious. And so rather than playing it by ear, rather than kind of playing fast and loose with this thing, <laughs> rather than kind of waiting to see how things shake out, you know, this was before the... Um, the shelter-in-place order was issued. In fact, it was issued that same night at midnight, but we hadn't heard any, anything final about it yet. So we're kind of against, we're kind of under the gun, you know, and there was, there was a fear maybe if um, we didn't act fast that our, our seminarians, we might be stuck there at the seminary and have to be in lockdown there. Anyway, so these are all factors at play. So Father Dan, to his eternal credit, simply made the decision and he said, look, um, we, are we are deciding to send all of you home and we're going to transition to online learning for the rest of the semester. And you're going to finish your classes over Google Meet from home. 
And that's how we're going to do it. And everyone, you know, acted and the team, because there was a clear vision and a clear decision. Um, we were able to get things in place very fast. By We were all home within two or three days. By the next week, we were back in classes online. And, and I, I remember I mentioned on the podcast at the time, I was pretty surprised by how smoothly things went. You know, I thought things would be chaotic probably for weeks because we were, we're not a technologically advanced institution <laughs> by any means. And that this is not going to be a seamless transition. But you know what? Under the circumstances, it was about as seamless as it could be. And I think uh, a lot of that is due to Father Dan's early decisive leadership and his stick to So in contrast to the leaders of other institutions, um, and again, not to cast aspersions at them, but simply to draw, to draw out the contrast, um, where others took their time and, and, and waited. By the time they, it, some of them had made a decision, you know, it was too late. It was too late for it to be effective. But Father Dan made the decision early, and he, was, he, was, he took the risk upon himself, you know. He was, willing, he was willing to take the risk of it having been the wrong decision, of being able to look back later and saying, man, I, sh- I could have done something different, I could have done this better. Maybe being embarrassed later, you know, if the pandemic turned out not to be a big deal. <laughs> and everyone said, Father Dan, what were you thinking sending all your guys home? You know, but he, he made the decision and he stuck to it. And I just, I admire that so much. I think that's really an important quality of leadership. It's one I hope to emulate. Because um, as I say, when you're the leader, you make the decision, you set the vision, you set the course, the direction, and then your team can act. And they can all act in unity. And they can all act because you've been decisive and they know that that you have set the course. They can all act towards that goal. And you're not leaving them guessing or wondering if you're going to change your mind. You know, here's another example. um, A a negative example I'm learning from this week is that, um, this this was just this morning, Uh, the sacristan at the Mass today did not know which priest was going to celebrate the Mass. And she did not know which Mass he would like to celebrate. By which I mean, you know, there are certain days in the liturgical calendar, especially in the Novus Ordo, the new uh, revision of of the Roman Rite, where the priest has the option to celebrate one of two or more different possible Masses. So today could have been a Saturday of ordinary time, which is a, a, you know, a green day, or it could have been the Saturday Memorial of Our Lady, which would be uh, in white or blue. Um, actually, it's just white. Unless you have a special permission like the priests of Spain do to wear blue, which I always think is so funny. Priests who have Spanish heritage can wear blue. I have Spanish heritage. I wonder if I could wear blue. But it's pretty distant. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, anyway. So, but you have that choice. So, so, one effect of that is the sacristan has to know because <laughs> you could only celebrate one and there's many options. So which mass is it going to be? Well, the sacristan didn't know. So she had to make a guess. So the priest rolls in less than five minutes before the mass today and uh, declares that he wants to celebrate the mass of Our Lady, the Saturday mass of Our Lady. Well, she had set up for the green mass. So then she has to make a choice. It's just a few minutes before mass. People are already all here. They're all out there trying to pray and get recollected and prepare for the Mass. So am I going to go out there now and change all the colors? (laughs) Change the tabernacle veil, the chalice veil, the altar cloth, uh, change the vestments all from green to white? Or are we going to do what we actually did, which is celebrate the Saturday Mass of Mary, you know, the texts and the proper prayers um, for Mary, but all in green, (laughs) which is liturgically inappropriate and weird. Um, But that's what we did. You know, and so so I'm seeing you know, and that that's an example. Um, I would say not exactly of of indecisiveness, because um, the priest made the decision, but he should have made it earlier, and it should have been communicated to the people in charge. In other words, the team that's a decision that needs to be made in time for the team to act and to prepare for that decision and to and to enact it, put it into practice. So. Another lesson I'm learning from that is to operate as a member of a team um, and, and to communicate the necessary information to the team for them to be able to do their jobs, to get it to them in a timely fashion. You know, I had the idea this morning 
one thing I would like to do as a, as a priest in a parish, um, and it's something very easy. I, I've told you already that I'm, I'm making a, a habitual practice of preparing my weeks ahead of time. And I think one thing I could do as part of that is just look at the liturgical calendar for the week. Very simple. And just see which days, maybe there's different options, and decide in advance what options I'm going to, to, to celebrate, which ones I'm going to take. And I can publish a, a list to keep in the sacristy, you know? Just put a calendar up in the sacristy. And so the sacristan who comes in can easily look at that day and see, oh, Father Matthew's celebrating today. And it'll be, it'll be in red, you know, for a martyr or whatever. Or it'll be, it'll be in white for this votive mass, he wants to say. Whatever it is, just so that they know. There's that need to be in communication um, in order for the team to operate effectively, to be able to do our jobs well. So just some lessons I'm hoping to take away. The greatest one, I think, is communication. Yeah, so decisiveness has to be paired with good communication. And again, Father Dan, our, our rector um, of, of happy memory, was such a good example of that. Because as I say, he gathered us all there in Santa Maria Hall, and he explained his reasoning to us. He told us why he was making this decision. He, he let us know that it wasn't easy, and I think we all felt such great sympathy for him and such great love for him in that moment. Because we could see, we could see how much it, it took for him to make this decision, and yet, for our sakes, um, he, he was willing to make it, and he was willing to take the responsibility of it upon himself, you know. And so, that, that all is, is part of what it is to be a good leader. It's up to you to make the decisions, um, but you also, you don't operate as a lone wolf. <laughs> you're, part, you're part of a team who are all working towards one goal. So you set the course, you provide the vision. You got to be able to explain, to, to get them on board, you know, to explain to them why we're going where we're going. And you've got to get it to them in time to be able to put things into practice to get there, you know. Um, and so these are, these, are all, these are all lessons that I'm learning. There are always I'm being formed, both by good examples and by, shall we say, some examples, uh, some, some less than perfect examples. Um, was there something else I was going to say here? Oh, I got, well, there was another example I was going to give about communication, but um, I think I'll, I'll skip that for the sake of charity. <laughs> uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll skip the example and I'll just mention kind of a lesson that I'm learning from it, which is... Uh, Part of good communication is directness and, yeah, being able to approach people directly. Um, I had an experience this week where there was a lot of miscommunication that came from someone trying to give me direction indirectly <laughs> and uh, getting someone else in the pastoral staff of the parish to come and ask me to do something. and just by getting other people involved who are not really part of something necessarily, just sort of multiplying the number of people involved in, in a communication always becomes a potential breeding ground for miscommunications. And uh, at the end of, at the end of a, 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 a difficult and confusing back and forth <laughs> that lasted almost a day, Things finally got resolved in this case, but so much could have been avoided simply by the person in question coming to me directly or going to my direct superior, to the pastor. That would have been fine, but not getting other people involved and kind of, you know, the circuitous back and forth, that, that, that can be really also really difficult um, and not a good way to communicate. So one, another thing I'm learning is yeah, just the value of directness, just the value of going directly to someone. And respecting the the, uh, the chain of command, the hierarchy within an organization, which always exists. There's always a kind of a hierarchy in an organization, and especially in the church, we are a hierarchical church, and that's the way that Christ has has willed the church to exist. And it, as Saint Paul says, um, the head is not greater than the foot. You know, we're part of one body. We all cooperate, and we need one another. But there is also there's a real chain of command, a chain of authority that's part of it that needs to be respected. Um, so, at any rate, these are some lessons that I'm, that I'm learning and hoping to take away from this week. I apologize if it's hard to hear me. 
I feel like I'm speaking pretty loudly, but that's because I'm driving now on a what's rapidly become a freeway, <laughs> and I'm having to drive fast, and so there's more noise in the car. I'm going to try to get off up here and somewhere where I can drive a little bit slower again. I, I've just been driving sort of mindlessly while I record this, and haven't paid much attention to where I'm going. So I'm going to come up here. I think I'm going to loop around kind of this uh, this uh, reservoir. I think it's called the Fern Lake Reservoir. I'm going to loop around it and come out at Vanita and drive back to Eugene that way. Um, oh yeah, this is where I should turn. Dang it, I missed my turn. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll turn again up here a little bit, a little bit further up. People behind me are wondering what I'm doing because I just tried to make a left turn and delayed someone in the left lane and then promptly went back to the right lane. <laughs> oh well, I'll find a way to, to get back to where I'm going in a second. So anyway, those are kind of my stories from this week, some lessons I'm hoping to take away. And another one, I guess I'll just add this, and this, this, isn't, this isn't a lesson from the via negativa, so to speak, a lesson from anyone's bad example. That I uh, that I would like to uh, to do better. It, it's rather it's just something I'm noticing in myself that I'd like to improve, and that is um, I, as I think I think I mentioned it. This has been a week a week of the whirlwind. You know, it's been a, it's been a busy week. It's been a week in which um, there's just been a lot of activity, and I think there's a real evil in that in the life of a priest. I should just say in the life of a Christian. You know, I, I remember sometimes, I, I had a, a professor in college seminary at Mount Angel who used to say that BUSY, uh, BUSY, B-U-S-Y, is an acronym that stands for Burdened Under Satan's Yoke. <laughs> and uh, it's a bit extreme, but I think there's really some truth there. Of course, to be busy, to be busy is something different from simply having a lot to do, isn't it? It's different from having a lot of responsibility or having a long to-do list. To be busy, to my way of thinking, is the state of being constantly whipped around from activity to activity like a, a leaf in a storm. You know, you're not carried along by a gentle breeze. You're just constantly being torn about from thing to thing and then you're not really finding your rest. And sometimes, I mean, that, that can, that, that's never a good state to be in. And I guess it can bring different effects to different people. Some people, um, well, anyway, it, it can have different deleterious effects on different people's psyches. One effect I see in myself is kind of a disordered longing for rest. Uh, and I find myself, you know, binging, binge watching on Netflix or overeating or different things like that. Uh, because I'm not... I'm not living in a, in a state of rest habitually. And so when the activities for the day are kind of, you know, at, at a stopping point, um, I want to sort of overindulge my need for rest, right? And I, and I seek for it in ways that are not really healthy. Well, as Christians, we're called to really live in the rest that the Lord gives. We're called to habitually be at rest. And there's kind of a paradox here. Um, but for, for a Christian, our, our, work, our work ought to be done from a state of rest. Our, our lives ought to be lived from a kind of a perpetual state of rest. We're not called to be lazy. That's not what this means. But the invitation for us, rather, is that in everything we do, to always be interiorly at rest with the Lord and not to have this kind of frantic activity characterize our existence but to live from a place of deep inner peace, this deep wellspring of interior, of interior peace, uh, peace, which comes from resting with Jesus. And it comes from knowing that He's the Lord, He's the Lord of our lives, and we trust Him and we have confidence in Him, and we know He's providing for us and we know He's with us, and He's giving us all we need, including all the time we need. And He's the one who assigns our work to us, and He knows how much we can bear. And He also gives us opportunities for rest, you know, like I spoke about last week, I think. He gives us these opportunities for rest in the midst of our days and to trust that He's going to give them and that they will be enough for us. 
what a profound truth is in those words. And it's hard to believe sometimes, but we know it's true that He will provide for all our needs. He, he will provide for us. The Lord will provide for us. We have to repeat that over and over, don't we? And strive to live by it. That's the battleground of our hearts. Because I think <laughs> part of our part, part of the cause of, of living in a, a busy and a frantic way and losing our rest and then trying to make up for it later in disordered and, and un- unhealthy ways is that we don't really believe the Lord is, is in charge. We don't really believe He's the Lord of our lives and He's going to provide for us. We kind of think, well, this heavy burden of my to-do list is mine and mine alone. I've got to manage it. I've got to, I've got to shoulder it. And as I, I heard a priest say recently, and I was... Oh, I just had to take kind of a sharp turn there. Sorry about that. Well, you're not in the car with me. You didn't have to feel it. <laughs> but uh, as I, I heard a priest say recently, and, and I was a little bit... I was honestly a bit scandalized to hear this, I, I must say. And you might wonder why when I tell you what it was. But he's a priest I respect, and I, I, you know, I, I know he's, he's a holy man, and he has a lot of spiritual gifts. So I was, I was surprised to hear him say this. But he, he said, um, there's just never enough time. There's just never enough time. And as I think back on it now, I think that's, that's a priest who's burdened under Satan's yoke. You know, it's not anything, um, <laughs> you know, it's not to say there's anything morally wrong with this priest. I'm saying he's the victim. He's the victim of having bought into Satan's lies here. That's a lie that there's never enough time. That's a lie that we have to renounce, guys. Because the truth is that time is God's gift to us. And like everything else God gives us, he gives it to us in right measure. God does nothing inordinately. You know, just like St. Paul says, he doesn't give us trials that are greater than we can bear. He gives us all the strength we need to bear them. It's the same thing with our time. He doesn't give us more activity than we can reasonably do. He gives us plenty of time. And not just to get all the work done. He's not a harsh taskmaster who's cracking his whip over us. He gives us plenty of time for our rest. He gives us plenty of time for recreation, to live full human lives. And in the midst of it all, as part harmoniously with all of that, to accomplish the particular mission that he's given us to do. So I'm just feeling called to live that way, to live in accordance with what I believe here, that God is providing, that God is provident. He's providing all that we need. He will always provide for our needs. And so just to renounce, yeah, to renounce, to renounce the lies that there's not enough time, to renounce to renounce our own need to be kind of managers of our lives, you know, <laughs> to kind of keep things under our control, but to submit it all to Jesus as the Lord. And I'll end with this. I've already spoken a long time just about my life, but I think this is just good stuff. This is all good stuff just to bring up. Um, and I hope it might be helpful for someone who listens to this. So one last thing. The Archbishop said yesterday uh, in a Zoom call, with me and some other seminarians. Um, He was mentioning about this prayer, the surrender prayer. And I think I've brought this up before on the podcast. I don't know. Um, I I prayed this as a novena. So for nine days, I prayed this prayer like a hundred times a day or something. (laughs) And there were also some little reflections that we, we read each day. But it's a very simple prayer, the surrender prayer. The Archbishop was recommending it to us yesterday. And it goes like this. Jesus, I trust you. Take care of everything. <laughs> Isn't that so? And yet, it says so much, doesn't it? It's so simple, and yet, and yet, it really says it all. Jesus, I trust you. Take care of everything. So by praying that prayer from the heart, we renounce our own, we renounce the lies of the devil that it's up to us to take care of everything. We renounce kind of this managerial mindset. We renounce frantic and busy living. And we announce the truth that Jesus is Lord and that we place our trust, our confidence in Him to take care of us, to provide for our needs. Jesus, I trust you. Take care of everything. So this week, I'll just invite you guys, and I'm going to do this too. Try to just make a practice of saying that prayer. Say it every day. 
and especially in moments where we feel burdened under Satan's yoke, let's just announce the truth. We belong to Jesus. We don't belong to the devil. We don't belong to the world. We belong to the Lord of heaven and earth. We'll just say, Jesus, we place our trust in you. Take care of everything. Take care of our to-do list. Take care of our calendars. Take care of our, our relationships. Take care of it all, Lord. You're the one. You're the one who can bear this burden. You know, that's what our Lord promises us, right? In St. Matthew's Gospel, he says, uh, Come to me, all you who are overburdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Sometimes people will comment about that passage, you know. Well, the Lord says his yoke is easy, but it sure doesn't feel easy. <laughs> and my response to that, and I, I'm responding first to myself here because I feel like that sometimes. But my response to that is, are you sure it's the Lord's yoke you're carrying and not your own? Because <laughs> the yoke, the burden that we tie up for ourselves is, can be very heavy, can't it? Crushing. Overburdening. Over, overburdening. Overburdensome. <laughs> what am I trying to say? But the Lord's yoke is truly easy and light. And this is the offer he makes that he will, he will take our burden upon his own shoulders and let us carry his yoke. That's the, that's the glorious exchange he offers us. So let's, let's take him up on that offer this week, shall we? And just try to live in union with him, carrying his yoke, carrying the burden that he sets for us, which is truly within our capacity and not, not our own. Not our own. Oh, I should mention one story from today also. And this is kind of what my what a friend of mine calls a glory story. You know, just a, a moment of the Lord's blessing to kind of encourage encourage others who hear it. Uh, I was I was feeling overburdened yesterday by the end of the day. Because among other things, I had been asked by a priest to give a reflection at a baptism this morning in our parish. And uh, I had not had the time to prepare for it. You know, I hadn't sat down and, and prepared at all. So last night, I, I um, in spite of my my desire to do something else, I sat in the chapel for a while and said the surrender prayer for several minutes, just praying that over and over on my rosary beads and was asking the Lord to just help me out with this baptism reflection. And in the midst of the prayer, you know, I had some good ideas that came to me and I, and, I, and I felt a good sense of direction about where to go with that reflection, what, what to say to the family. And um, so by the time I went to bed, I, I felt confident. I hadn't written anything down, but I felt like, okay, I kind of, I can stand up there tomorrow at the AMBO and say something that'll be, I think, um, reasonably well thought out and clear and, uh, and, and I think uh, helpful. You know, it's what the Lord was kind of putting on my heart. So I went to bed in peace. And I thought that was the Lord's answer to my prayer. Well, today, after the morning Mass, um, I was in the sacristy, and the priest turned to me and said, Matthew, I have some bad news. <laughs> and I thought, okay, <laughs> what is it, Father? He said, the baptism, you, do you remember that I asked you to, uh, to give a reflection on this baptism today? <laughs> I thought, do I remember? I've been stressing about it. So I said, yeah, I remember. He said, well, it's canceled. <laughs> <laughs> it's been canceled. So, I, and it was all I could do to hide my joy, you know? So I said, <laughs> well, I hope they've rescheduled. And he said, oh yeah, they've rescheduled for another day, and such and such day. Um, so the, the, of course, the child will still be baptized, you know? It's just postponed. Um, but, uh, so it's, it's off for today. <laughs> and as soon as he left the sacristy, I was like on cloud nine. I was like, Jesus, you are so good. <laughs> Not only did you, did you provide for me in the sense of kind of giving me some clear direction, I felt like, you know, in terms of what to say, what I might say. Um, but the whole thing has been postponed. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I received that as a gift this morning. As, yeah, it's really, really a gift from the Lord. Um, and uh, so that, that's a fruit of praying the surrender prayer and just allowing, allowing the Lord to take care of us. So Jesus, we trust in you. Take care of everything. And now um, I, uh, 
I was contemplating going out to this spot I know to do a bit of a, a walk, nature walk, but I think given the time, what I'm going to do is just turn around here and I'm going to get back to, I'm going to head, head back into the city of Eugene again. Um, I've circumnavigated the whole city and I'm back out in the country on the other side now. So <laughs> I'm going to, but I'm going to now turn back, go back into the city, make my way back to the parish because we've got confessions in an hour. And on this last leg of the journey, I am going to share with you some thoughts on King Henry VIII. Here we go. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. So what about King Henry VIII? Well, this is a very interesting play. I was surprised to see that... Um, the emphasis of the story of this play is not so much on the schism uh, between the Church of England and the Church of Rome, which of course is what Henry VIII is most known for, at least in, in my circle of knowledge. <laughs> um, the, the drama of the play, rather, is very much focused on Henry's divorce from Catherine of Aragon and his remarriage to Anne Boleyn, which I guess is pretty famous too. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, let's see, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so it seems that uh, critics and commentators of Shakespeare are pretty much unanimous in saying that this play was not written solely by Shakespeare. It's, it's a collaborative effort, rather. Um, and I don't know if they know who his collaborator or collaborators might have been. But I think that really shows in the structure of the play. You know, as, as you read this play, it is a bit disjointed, <clears throat> and it's not really... There's not a clear sense of, like, the drama that began in Act 1 carries through with a single impetus of motion to be resolved in Act 5. There's rather, there's kind of a, a central core, and then there's some other little stories that we see and that kind of fizzle out and don't really seem to contribute particularly to the central plot, uh, if that makes sense. <clears throat> so it's, it's not one of Shakespeare's best dramas, I think. But um, there are some some Shakespearean flourishes, you know, there are some, some brilliant uh, speeches and some, some really uh, uh, um, brilliant characters which bear Shakespeare's distinctive mark, I think. Well, the one who stands out the most is Catherine of Aragon, the erstwhile Queen of England, whom Shakespeare ends up divorcing and sort of rejecting and abandoning in order to remarry uh, the beautiful Anne Boleyn. And uh, I think that in the character of Catherine, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a little bit hoarse here for some reason, maybe because I've been talking so enthusiastically, <laughs> but um, I think in the character of Catherine, who is the most conspicuous Catholic of the play, who, who, who sort of, who sort of is, um, how shall I say, is... Uh, <laughs> who's a good person, you know? I mean, you've got Cardinal Wolsey, but he's such a manipulator and kind of a, you know, a king, uh, what do you say? Kingmaker or something? He's a, he's a, he, he's, he moves behind the scenes and he puts people in power to enrich himself. Um, so he, he's not a very flattering, of course, like almost all of Shakespeare's bishops and hierarchs of the church. But, but uh, Catherine of Aragon, though, she's, uh, she's a Catholic, of course, queen and uh, daughter of King Fernando of Spain, the Spanish royal line. And I think in her we see a kind of an image, don't we, of the Catholic Church in England. So you may or may not know that Henry VIII was given the title of Defensor Fidei, Defender of the Faith, by the Pope at that time. He was given that title because of a tract he wrote. Uh, it's called In Defense of the Seven Sacraments. And he actually wrote it against Martin Luther. And uh, uh, people often think that, I, I think Sir Thomas Becket, St. Thomas Becket, um, had actually written it for him. He'd ghostwritten it. But in any case, the king published it under his own name. So he, he was publicly rebuking Martin Luther and defending the Orthodox Catholic faith the Pope gave him this honor of calling him Defensor Fide. And then a few short years later, of course, in the embroglio of, 
of uh, divorcing Catherine and remarrying Anne Boleyn. Henry ends up um, leading the entire Church of England to schism and forming his own counter-church, you know. And, and uh, so I think that in the person of Catherine of Aragon, we see a kind of an image of the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in England, which is from which Henry effects a kind of questionably legal divorce <laughs> to be as charitable as possible. Um, you know, one, one, the parallel I see is one whom he was sworn to defend and protect, he casts aside in order to satisfy the lusts of his own flesh. Basically, it, 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 he he he's yeah he he casts he casts aside and abandons the one to whom he he was vowed the one whom he was sworn whom he was committed to in order to marry another and so that's a kind of you know that's kind of a biblical image I think of schism or of apostasy um, we see that all the time in the prophets of the Old Testament. They, they come before the kings of Israel and they say, woe unto you. And they always use the image kind of of adultery. You know, idolatry or apostasy is illustrated by means of adultery. Because, you know, the king stands in the place of his people. And the king is supposed to be, if you want, espoused to one bride. Not only the queen, but in place of the whole people to be sort of espoused to God. And this was the image, especially of Israel. They're one people under one God. And the king, the king is kind of the, the um, not only the military and political king, but the sort of liturgical king of the people. And he leads the people in the divine praises. And he leads them in their worship of Almighty God. And this, this image of the kingship of Israel was carried over into Christendom and the Christian kingdoms of Europe. And so you see in Henry VIII, um, you see, of course, his his actual uh, adultery, his illegitimate divorce of Catherine of Aragon, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, you know, his illegitimate divorce of Catherine of Aragon and his remarriage. And we know also from our historical perspective that he does not just remarry once, but what is it, four or five more times. Anne Boleyn will pretty soon be beheaded and another woman will take her place and, and another and another and another. His libido is sort of unquenchable, you know, he, he continues on in this vein that he's begun. So not, not only that, not only the, the adultery and the rejection of his, his rightful, lawful wife, which is, of course, bad enough, um, but we also see in Henry VIII uh, a, a man who, rather than being faithful to his commitment to the church, leads his people into schism and into apostasy. And so he is, isn't he? He's sort of this image, this image of uh, the king who we don't really know, as one person pointed out, we, we don't really get a clear enough picture of Henry VIII himself to know whether he does this out of malice or simply out of, you know, sort of uh, the slavery of his unbridled passions or out of sort of ignorance or, or what exactly is going on. But whatever the reason, he leads his people, um, not in the way of the commitments that he has made, but uh, he, he, he leads them into, well, he leads them into schism and divorce. I mean, he leads them into disillusion. He leads them into, um, he leads them into division rather than in the way of unity and commitment. And so I'm thinking now, just in light of what I said earlier about leadership, he's sort of, he's sort of the prime example of a leader who is indecisive, Right? He can't even decide on one wife. He's constantly following the whims of his passions. And whoever the latest woman is who catches his eye, he's going he's gonna to marry her and forget about the last one. And it's just the same with God and the church. His commitments are fleeting. He follows his own whims. And he creates chaos about himself in the court. Because people, and we see this with Henry VI too in a different way. Henry VI is also kind of an indecisive figure who I'm very sympathetic to um, in, a, in a lot of ways. But we see how these indecisive figures create chaos because when the leader is weak, there are others around them who are always jockeying for power and who are, they have no hesitation about sometimes doing gravely immoral things to sort of win for themselves 
uh, the kind of power that they crave and the authority that they desire over others. And so when you have an indecisive leader in a position of power, you get kind of a cabal of others beneath him who are conspiring and plotting to raise their own rank and to, and to amass power to themselves. Cardinal Wolsey is one of them, this figure of a, you know, the Catholic hierarch who's manipulative and amoral to the extreme. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that, that's kind of my reading of Henry VIII. Catherine of Aragon stands out um, in that she, when she is, is, is sort of sent into exile, she's not formally exiled, but she, I mean, she's still in England, but she's sent away from the court and she's kind of living in isolation and, and uh, ultimately is divorced and deprived of the crown and, and everything. So she's humiliated, but she never loses her dignity. And you can see that in her, in her beautiful speeches. She always remains convinced of kind of the rightness of her own cause and the cleanness of her conscience. And she maintains the regal bearing of a queen up until the very end. And so she's, a, she's really a noble figure. She's been wronged, she's been humiliated and, and deprived of, of all her rights, but she retains this nobility of character, which really speaks to us. She's a tragic figure, to be sure, but she, as I say, she never loses, she never loses who she is. She remains true to herself and to, and to her, to her regal identity. And um, yeah, so, so I think as I read this play, I see in Catherine of Aragon that, that symbol, that image of the church, cast off by Henry, humiliated, you know, despoiled of all her property under Henry VIII, the, church, the churches are ransacked, the monasteries are dissolved, the cathedrals are looted, and the priests and bishops are executed in the streets. Um, so the church really is, uh, is, is pillaged and, and brought to the brink of destruction <laughs> in England. Those, at least, that wouldn't capitulate to the royal edict that the king is now the, the head of the church on earth, right? So, anyway... I see in Catherine that image of the church. The church persecuted, the church, you know, brought low, humiliated. But the church who never, the church who is unyielding, the church doesn't forget who she is. The church doesn't, the church is never reduced to kind of begging or, or, um, or you know, capitulating before Henry. She, just as Catherine kind of maintains her, her dignity, that she is his rightful wife, whatever he may say or do. I mean, she walks out of these illegitimate court proceedings with her head held high, you know? She sort of stalks out of them. She won't even honor them with her presence, you know? And in the same way, the church, the Catholic church in England, I think, you know, there's obviously malefactors on both sides, as Cardinal Wolsey shows us with a rare, uh, illustrious example, you know? But the church, the church in England, I think, retains that nobility of character, of recognizing that she is the true church and she is the one you know England for centuries um, worshipped according to the Catholic faith and whatever she might have to suffer the church is not going to capitulate at least anyway that, that's, that's kind of the, the allegory that I see uh, in Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon so you're welcome to uh, disagree or to share with me your own readings I always welcome hearing those from listeners and if you send me a voice memo, a voice message, I'd be happy to include it in the next episode, as always. Anything else about this play I wanted to say? Let me think for a moment. Henry VIII. Um, nothing immediately comes to mind. There's one common commentator that I, that I read who mentioned, um, he just wondered what Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth would have thought if she lived to see this. I guess it wasn't produced until after she died. Elizabeth I, that is, of course. But, you know, she's there in the last act of the play. And there's this, this wonderful um, soliloquy by Ar uh, Archbishop Cranmer, the Anglican reforming archbishop, kind of the founder of Anglicanism, or one of the, the founders at any rate. Um, and he gives this speech in honor of Elizabeth I, prophesying about her great and noble destiny and all this sort of thing. But one wonders what really she would have made of this play. <laughs> because it depicts her, well, for one thing, her father in a very unflattering light. 
and it depicts the, the true circumstances of her birth in kind of questionable terms. Catherine of Aragon is made out to be a, a great hero, almost a martyr. But one, one wonders what Elizabeth might have made of this. Um, of course, it, it's not, in so many words, questioning the legitimacy of her reign or of her birth or anything like that. But it, it does sort of, it, do, it doesn't paint the most flattering picture of her family <laughs> or her parents or her, the circumstances by which she came into power, into, into, the, into the, uh, the royal line. So, yeah, anyway, something there which is, is worthwhile to consider. And this play, I think, might, might make for an interesting piece of evidence in the arguments for Shakespeare being Catholic, you know? There's a great book I've not read yet, but it's on my list, and I think, I think it's simply called Was Shakespeare Catholic? <laughs> Question mark. There are historical arguments to be made that he was, in fact, a recusant Catholic, who, of course, could not admit it publicly. And in his plays, we see him, we see him wrestling with the Catholic faith a lot of the time. Not really with, with the faith. I mean, we see beautiful expressions of Catholic faith. But with the church, you know, he paints the hierarchs of the church in often such uh, appalling <laughs> colors, you know. But, but one would have to do that in Protestant England at, at the time, where to, to fly the Catholic colors would literally be to risk imprisonment or execution. Um, so I think it's an interesting discussion that is sort of ongoing amongst Shakespeare scholars. But this play, I wonder if it might produce some interesting evidence one way or the other. Um, he, he, he avoids, as I say, uh, for the most part, the real question of the legitimacy of the Anglican Church one way or the other, or, or kind of the whole circumstances of its founding. It all happens off stage. We just get hints of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's an interesting question. It's, it's one that I, that I ponder from time to time as I read these plays, because they do seem to be informed by a real Catholic sensibility. And um, yeah, I, I, can, I can certainly see... Now, now that might be explained, of course, because um, the, Anglican, the Anglican Church was very new, even in Shakespeare's day uh, in, in England. And of course, it, it's informed very much by a Catholic sensibility. But, I don't know, I think it's an interesting discussion. If you happen to read the book, I'd like to hear about it. <laughs> and uh, if not, maybe sometime next year, I'll read it and I'll, and I'll give you my thoughts of it. So friends, that is all I have to say for today. I'm almost back to the house now. I'm going to stop by the rectory, change real quickly into my clerics, because I'm out dressed for a hike, and then head over to the parish to uh, assist with our afternoon confession times, and then serve the evening Latin Mass, the Saturday Vigil Mass, uh, this evening. Then head home for a bit of dinner and to plan and prepare for the week to come. So friends, um, thank you for listening to this podcast again this week. I appreciate all of you who regularly tune in to hear what's going on with me. Um, and I, I wish you all a very peaceful week to come. In fact, my wish for you is that... Uh, as we spoke about earlier in the episode, that, that this week for you will be a week of just abiding with the Lord and bearing His yoke, and that we may always remember in moments of busyness and distress this week and always to pray that simple prayer, Jesus, I trust in you. Take care of everything. Friends, may God bless you, protect you from all evil, and bring you to everlasting life. Amen.